This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, a former English mining village on its last legs is split by the arrival of some unexpected guests. She marched in here as if she owns the place. What next? Building the mosque. <laughs> as Japan rebuilds after World War II, American nuclear testing unleashes a threat to the country's very existence. <laughs> And a band of brothers puts their differences aside for a gig that could save the life of someone they love. Blanche, get up there. Go sing with your brothers. I'll do it to save Floyd when I have to, but I'm not doing it right now just for funsies. been bought online, right, on an auction. They've never been to the village to have a look at the houses. They've never walked round the street, our streets in our village, you know. Uh, Bought by some speculating greedy bastard who'll rent them out to some moron. Mm -hmm. The parasites. They are. All they do, they don't even come to the village, they don't even come to the street, they don't even see the houses they're buying. Now you heard this. They're advertising homes for rent in my street, right, in Durham Prison. I'm not kidding you. It's been a good year to be an 80-plus-year-old film director. Martin Scorsese, 81, picked up a New York Film Critics Circle Best Picture Award for Killers of the Flower Moon last week, an important precursor for this summer's awards season. 86-year-old Ridley Scott has an epic historical drama in cinemas and the critical consensus is that his director's cut of Napoleon will be a marked improvement on the version that's available right now. Images were even released last month of a smiling 93-year-old Clint Eastwood back behind the camera. His next film stars Tony Collette and Nicholas Holt and is a legal drama called Jura Number no. 2, which is due out next year. And then there's 87-year-old Ken Loach. I've lost count of the number of films of his that have crossed my path with the warning that this is going to be his last one. But here we are once again with a film that easily ranks with the very best of his work. The Old Oak is a shabby and run-down pub in a former mining village in the northeast of England. It's the only community facility left, but as the town is slowly drained of opportunities, it too seems destined for the history books. The publican, T.J. Ballantyne, played by Dave Turner, is a decent enough bloke, but also fundamentally broken like his pub. Many of the empty houses in the community are being sold for a song to absentee landlords, reducing the property values for the locals, and others are being made available to resettled refugees. When a coachload of Syrian survivors of civil war arrive, TJ is one of the few to make them feel welcome. But, as Margaret Thatcher knew all too well, sowing seeds of discontent among the dispossessed is the best way to ensure they don't come after the powerful, and others in the community think that the state should be doing something for them before offering a helping hand to strangers. I thought you might like a drink. Thank you. 
When you eat together, you stick together. Yeah, your mother always said that. Yeah, we used to do the same before we left Syria. We used to cook together too with our neighbors and sleep under the stairs in case we were bumped. After taking during the strike, I was just a young lad. I just started down the pit and the government tried to starve us back to work. So we made sure that we ate together every day. Yeah. And what's that? Oh, this is more of the strike. You didn't want to be caught by those bastards. Yeah. But they look so strong. Yeah, we were. You know, my father always said, if the workers realise the power that they have, and the cobblers to use it, we could change the world. But we never did. But the government is nowhere to be seen. Just the impact of their decisions on people who are relatively powerless. The Syrian refugees didn't choose civil war for themselves and their communities. It was forced upon them by the powerful. The miners didn't decide to close their own pits in 1984 to destroy their local economy and extinguished opportunities for their young people. Westminster did that without ever even visiting. Another interesting insight in the Old Oak is that everyone in the village knows who it was who scabbed during the 1984 strike. It's never been forgotten, and the poison in the hearts of those who broke the strike has formed a different kind of scab, their souls are calloused. They can't access their empathy any longer. It's just everyone for themselves. I want to note the influence of Loach's regular collaborator, the screenwriter Paul Laverty. He was a human rights advocate in Nicaragua during the war between the popularly elected Sandinistas and the American-backed Contras. When he approached Loach in 1996, he'd never written a screenplay before, and he's hardly written for anyone else since. I mihi to him because Loach's style is so naturalistic that you barely feel the touch of the screenwriter at all, but this long, wonderful period of films that includes My Name is Joe, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, I, Daniel Blake, and Sorry We Missed You wouldn't exist without him. My children will never see the temple in Tadmur, Balmera, built by the Romans and destroyed by the Islamic State. When you have half of your country in rubble and you see this, it makes me want to cry. What will Syria be like in a thousand years? How many years to cut the stones, to lift the weight, to imagine the light, how many brilliant minds, how much sweat, how many people working together. Such a beautiful place. It makes me want to hope again. In his latest book, Nick Cave describes hope as optimism with a broken heart. And there are broken hearts all around the old oak. But there is also hope. I'm glad Loach found some of that. Beautifully modulated at all times, The Old Oak is one of my favourite films of the year. Loach directs these characters with respect, unobtrusively. 
There are barely any close-ups. He's keeping a respectful distance, and there's nothing emotionally exploitative. But despite that, I was still crying so hard I could barely take any notes. It's a film that acknowledges that all of us are just specks in the great scheme of things, but that we still have a choice about whether we make things a tiny bit better for others or a tiny bit worse. Sometimes in life there are no need for words, only food. You make me feel quite ashamed after what you've been through to do this for me. There is no shame in love, Mr. Ballantyne. We understand loss. Please, take a seat. Thank you. The Old Oak is rated M for offensive language. The film is in select cinemas across the Motu now. Despite budgets that barely scratch the surface of their Hollywood counterparts, Japan still produces the best monster movies around. I don't know what it says about a nation that has experienced some of the greatest physical disasters in the history of the world to still want to see that level of carnage recreated on screen. Is it healing? I suppose it must be. The latest Godzilla film, the 33rd, from the famed Toho studio, is Godzilla Minus One. And, like its predecessors, this Godzilla is a giant, fire-breathing, scaly metaphor. As World War II draws to a close, kamikaze pilot Koichi, played by Ryonosuke Kamiki, is saved from going on a suicide bombing run by the arrival on the small Pacific island on which he's stationed of a giant, hacked-off lizard. Back in Japan, he is wracked with survivor guilt, but manages to rebuild his life with a young woman he meets in the rubble and an unrelated baby girl, both of whom had lost everything in the bombing of Tokyo. Determined to make up for what he considers to be his failure during the war, he takes a job on a minesweeper in Tokyo Bay. Two ships tow a submerged cable around to cut the lines that connect the many hundreds of mines to the seabed. When they float to the surface, his job as crack marksman is to shoot them out of the water. It's dangerous but rewarding work, and he makes some great friends. Great friends who are going to prove useful when that giant lizard wakes up with a nuclear-powered headache. Pacific Fleet Destroyer USS Lancaster was attacked and disabled by an unknown enemy. No further details known at this time. Intercepted attempt distress call from Pacific Fleet attack sub-USS Redfish reporting pursuit of massive undersea organism through Pacific waters. After successfully photographing target, Redfish made contact and was destroyed. Red reconnaissance picked up high radio accident open missions where Hulk collided with enemy creature skin. 
1946 U.S. nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll rouse the monster once again, and Godzilla hits Tokyo, destroying much of the previously untouched Ginza district in one of the most spectacular depictions of urban carnage ever put on screen. And then, point proved, he disappears back into the ocean. To protect the people of Japan from a future attack, all aspects of society must join forces to find a technological and engineering solution to the Godzilla problem. But they're going to be on their own. The Americans can't help because they're too busy playing one-upmanship with the Russians. Maybe this will also provide an opportunity for Koichi to find the redemption he's seeking, a redemption that he probably doesn't even need. ないってるんですか。やっとも思いで生きて帰ってきたんでしょ。仕方ないでしょ。このままじゃ3人とも飢えずにです。吐き込んだってこのままじゃ。それは分かってるけど。金さえあれば。金さえあれば。アメリカ
afraid that singing with your brothers again after all these years will overwhelm you with emotions too powerful for you to handle. I, I agree with you. I don't think you can handle it, so I think you shouldn't do it. I think I can handle singing a song. Prove it! Prove it! Prove it! Prove it! Oh, all right, fine. But this is more than likely beneath me. Yeah! My girl's like candy, a candy treat. She knocks me right up off my feet. She's so fine, as can be. It's like a perfect harmony. Somewhere in China, there is a production line spewing out little plastic good luck troll toys. But I doubt it moves quite as fast as the Trolls movie-making franchise, the third of which, Trolls Band Together, is out now. Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake are back as the two leads, Poppy and Branch. At the beginning of this film, we learn that Branch was once in a successful boy band with his four brothers. A falling out during a concert saw them split up and not talk to each other for years. When they discover that brother Floyd has been kidnapped by two nefarious siblings, played by Amy Schumer and Andrew Rennells, who are stealing his talent, literally draining his life force in order to build a successful career for themselves, the other brothers, and Poppy of course, realise that the only way to save the day is to, you guessed it, Get the band back together. Ladies and gentlemen, here they are. The Heartthrob. The Fun Boy. The Sensitive One. The Leader. And the Baby. Give it up for Rosa! But it isn't as simple as that sounds. All the boys are scattered hither and yon and now have lives, families, some of whom don't know about their pop past. And there's another secret. Poppy has a long-lost sister, voiced by pop star Camilla Cabello. There must be one, because otherwise Anna Kendrick wouldn't have anything to do. This film is about a boy band, remember? Oh my gosh, hello! My name is Viva! It is so fantastic, amazing to see other trolls. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. So, fantastic, amazing is my own personal word. It means um, fantastic and amazing. I used to say amastic, but then I was like, mm, that's not as good. Fantastic, awesome. That's different, but that works too. Way to make it your own. Is this how people feel when they meet me? Yes. I couldn't quite work out who this was aimed at. If you were a young kid when the first film came out, you're in your mid to late teens now. The music choices are all covers of music that would have appealed to those kids' parents. Sweet dreams are made of these. Night fever, the hustle. And then the whole boy band nostalgia, including an in-sync reunion, is aimed at the generation in between. Maybe that's the point. There's something recycled and auto-tuned here for everyone. So, do you like this show? I don't know what you're waiting for. Cuff it. Today ain't the day. Okay. Cause I'm in the mood to be deep in love. How do we fix this? Because this is a very big problem. I got this drink in my cup. Woo, I'm out of breath. <laughs> we just need to simplify. 
Still in the world of pop music, but definitely not stealing or draining anyone else's talent because she has more than enough to go around, is Beyonce Knowles Carter, who, like Taylor Swift, has put a filmed record of her extraordinary Renaissance concert tour on big screens around the world. It's not quite the same as Swift's Eras tour film that came out about a month ago. This is more like a documentary with long performance segments interspersed with behind-the-scenes footage from the preparation, rehearsals and the shows, and with little extra digressions into her family and a Destiny's Child reunion. I appreciated that Miss Knowles Carter wanted to spotlight the other creative collaborators and the hard-working crew. It takes hundreds of people to make a production like that, and I'm always curious about what makes modern show people tick. There are no people like them, as the old song says. They smile when they are low. And the great diva herself has enough self-knowledge to admit that there are three versions of her. The wife and mother, the hard-as-nails businesswoman employing all of those people and the extraordinary force of nature that appears when she walks on stage. Even she doesn't quite know where that comes from. Unlike Swift, who looks like she might have stepped out of the audience, just one of you ordinary folks who shucks had a bit of talent and got lucky, Beyoncé is like a god walking among us. Someone who can dictate that her shows are a safe space for the alphabet people who make up so many of her fans. Someone whose digital alter ego is entirely made of chrome and shoots lasers from her nipples. She demands awe, and it's easy for an audience, including your humble correspondent, to comply. But the film fails to wrestle with many of her contradictions. She boosts and is adored by many of the most marginalised subcultures that modern life has to offer, but charges them a fortune to be in her presence. Her shows are technological marvels, and they bring so much joy to so many. But I'm not sure that flying back to Cannes in a private jet after every show is all that sustainable, you know, long term. I have nothing to prove to anyone at this point. We are creating our own world. is my reward. Nobody can take that away from me. Trolls Band Together is rated G and is in multiplexes now. Renaissance, a film by Beyonce, is rated PG for offensive language and is playing limited sessions in multiplexes across this great nation of ours now. And that's our program for this week. We'll play ourselves out with some famous theme music from Godzilla, written by Akira Ifukube in 1954 for the first film and still being used in Godzilla films to this day. Sometimes just in the closing credits, so fans know that the DNA is still intact. But in Godzilla Minus One, it gets used throughout. It's the hardest working theme in show business. This week's program was written and produced by me, Dan Slevin, and engineered by Mark Chesterman. 
Simon Morris returns next week, so I hope you'll make a point of joining him at the movies at the same time here on RNZ National. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.